Hi, my name's Ari Stein, and this is the 52 Insights Podcast. What do we want the 21st century to look like? Do we want to chart our own optimistic course into the future, relying on the enormous progress that we've already made? Do we want to take to the streets and challenge the current wave of authoritarianism gripping many parts of the world? Or do we want to sit back and allow our leaders to decide what's best for us? These are the questions I will be unpacking with my guest this week, the renowned German-American political scientist Yasha Mull. Yasha is an Associate Professor of International Relations at John Hopkins University in Washington, D.C. He's a contributing editor at The Atlantic, a Senior Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations and the founder of Persuasion. Monk, through his books, The People vs. Democracy, Stranger in My Own Country, and his latest book, The Great Experiment, aims to document the bitter challenges that we all face as citizens of this fragile project which we call democracy. Every major democracy in the world is experiencing teething problems right now, from rising inflation to some very deep soul-searching in a post-pandemic world. All of these are interconnected difficulties which we face together that look increasingly intractable. Democracy, the freedom project in which we all participate, is a relatively novel enterprise within the timeline of our own existence. To keep this experiment robust and breathing, Monk says we must do the work. But how can we, when we spend most of our time these days perpetuating the same apocalyptic myths about where we're heading? I find this exercise to be energy-wasting. But I also personally struggle to see how making our world climate-resilient in the future can coexist with attending to our needs and welfare. This is something Yasha and I grapple with in this important discussion. I also pose the existential question to Yasha, whether government in its current form is fit to lead us into the future and what would replace it if the opportunity arose. Whatever your ideas about how to fix this experiment, this is a really important and difficult discussion to have, which I enjoyed immensely. As Yasha and I get into the weeds of these problems, Russia makes a renewed advance into Ukraine, aiming to disrupt the calm which we have all fought so hard to preserve. Uh, Yasha Munk, thank you for joining me on the 52 Insights podcast. It's my pleasure. So um, how do we begin this discussion? It seems like, you know, we're living through uh, what is considered a very turbulent time. Um, you know, the problems we face as a society at least in the West, seem insurmountable in some ways. In other ways, things seem great. Um, There's a lot of reason to be optimistic. I, for one, am an optimistic person. But even for me at this moment, I guess there seems to be a pervasive sense of pessimism in our society. And I think what we're witnessing now is perhaps um, a wave of denial in some quarters in liberal circles, myself included, that potentially think the Western liberal order is infallible, that it can never collapse. Maybe that's because I'm too much of an optimist or I'm too used to my cappuccino and lattes, I guess. Um, I guess within that general pessimism, though, there's a vacuum or a raging debate that's opened up. I guess that depends on how you view things or where you sit. Um, But if both those things or either of them are operating at full force, they can have such consequential damage. You yourself, Yasha, have built um, 
you know, a fantastic career as an intellectual and a thought leader on defending the values of liberal democracy and why this great experiment, as you coin it, um, needs grit and determination to maintain. And it's surely being tested right now. So we have economic, social, cultural turbulence coupled with enormous political uncertainty. You know, but I, I don't think there's any other way to start this discussion than to address, um, you know, the, the bull in the China shop, which is, you know, the, the Russia-Ukraine crisis. It's the most obvious and direct threat. It's probably the, the most potent one we've had since World War II. To me, the whole, field, the whole thing just, um, it feels bizarre. And such an egregious use of power on Putin's behalf, his reasons for all of this, just this carnage just feels so arbitrary. So, Yasha, you know, for our audience, maybe you could just give us our own snapshot of what this conflict means for our democracies, where we're at in terms of what the variables look like and how you think, how you think this conflict plays out. Yeah, you know, it's interesting what you were saying a moment ago about it's difficult to understand Putin. I think that itself shows the depth of our illusions, which is that uh, most people act from the perspective of human rights, of democratic values, of uh, you know some minimal respect for the international rules. And so as a result, many people think that what Putin is doing is somehow irrational and they worry he might be a kind of madman. Um, uh, outrageous, though I find his actions disgusting, though I find them. Uh, I think that misunderstands him. Uh, what he has do done over the last 10 or 15 years is perfectly rational if your only interest is in expanding Russian power and ensuring his own uh, tyrannical hold over his own society. Um, if you read history books, nothing about what Putin does is out of a norm for absolute dictators or absolute monarchs of the past. Uh, and we've just... Uh, forgotten what kind of a challenge that poses to to our way of living um, and to anybody who wants to make sure that uh, most people in the world actually get to have some determination, self-determination, some freedom, uh, some real agency over how to how to live. Um, so that I think is the challenge we now we now have. We have uh, not just a crisis of democracy but a real resurgence of dictators in Russia, in China, in, in other parts of the world. And uh, uh, so it's not very popular to say so, it just is true that we're now in a real competition for what the 21st century will look like, whether the rules uh, for the next decades are written in, in Moscow and Beijing, or whether they're written in uh, Stockholm, where you are, in Washington, D.C., where I am, and, and New Delhi in India, as long as Indian democracy holds, and Nairobi in Kenya, and all of the other countries in the world that are um, aspiring uh, to some form of freedom. Um, so, so sadly, that's, 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 that's the stakes of, of the Ukraine war, most specifically, but of the larger uh, conflict uh, uh, that 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 the world is now in. How do you think this? Uh, where does this conflict go to next? Um, a lot of people, I think, are anxious about you know the variables involved and if this skirmish uh, bleeds over the borders, um, it will have grave consequences. Um, what what what's your thoughts on that? 
Uh, well, obviously, the uh, you know prospect of nuclear war looms uh, uh, in the background, and that's the reason why, very sensibly, uh, NATO has uh, not intervened and has not um, uh, erected no-fly zone over Ukraine. Um, uh, so I think that uh, 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 the prospect of this for 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 frightening. Uh, is, is less likely than some people now now fear. Um, uh, NATO is not going to uh, risk a direct conflagration with with Russia, and Putin is a rational agent. He just wants to expand his power uh, in in any way he can. Um, but what this also does mean is that the best way to actually to actually ensure that um, Europe returns to peace in the coming years, and that Russia doesn't. Uh, go and have a new military adventures, uh, perhaps including in countries where the risk of nuclear war would be much higher because they are members of NATO, um, is to uh, show firmness. Um, uh, we all must hope that there will eventually be a peace treaty between Ukraine and Russia. Um, but the only way to force Putin to accept the peace treaty and the only way to ensure that it actually sticks is to put Ukraine in a position where it can effectively defend itself against this aggression. You, you say that they would defend themselves, but the ante is upped. The more that they defend themselves, it only serves to irritate Putin even more. Um, and you also, interestingly enough, you paint him as a rational agent, as you said, but the West are portraying him as a madman. Um, how, how do those two kind of things meet up? Well, I, I don't know that, I mean, some people, you know, the West is, you know, a cacophonous jumble of different voices, right? I mean, you have your voice on your podcast, I have my voice on my podcast, there's, there's a million people saying a million different things. Some people certainly seem to believe that he's irrational. I don't think that that's the assessment of the United States, uh, of, of the State Department in the US. I don't think that that's the assessment of most diplomats. I think they understand that they're dealing with somebody who was actually acting very rationally. Look, for 10, 15 years, um, actually for 20 years since he gained power, Putin has tested the Western reaction to various ways in which he's aggrandized Russia's power, uh, to the, the horrible uh, steps he took in Grozny, to uh, uh, the invasion of Georgia, uh, to the invasion of Eastern Ukraine. Uh, to his meddling in Syria. And each and every time, uh, there was barely any reaction. And after a few months of grumbling, people went back to the negotiating table and, uh, you know, uh, treated Putin, if not as its friend, then at least as a partner you can do business with. And so it was perfectly rational for him to think, how is this going to be different if I invade Ukraine? Why should this time be different? And the assessment of many people in the intelligence services of the West was that Ukraine would not be able to defend itself very well. So perhaps he might have been right if he'd managed to capture Kiev within a week or two, if Zelensky had uh, uh, taken up the suggestion of leaving the country rather than responding with his uh, wonderful state phrase, I don't need a ride, I need ammunition, um, then perhaps he would have gotten his way. So I don't think that his invasion of Ukraine was irrational. It was immoral. It was cruel, um, but, you know, from his perspective of trying to reconstitute a kind of Russian empire and aggrandize his power, it didn't seem like an obviously irrational move. 
sign up to the 52 Insights newsletter and subscribe to my podcast channel to get notified of my latest interviews with extraordinary people. What are the, um, what do you, how, if you were to get into the, to the mindset of the Russian people, uh, you know, there's the way that the West paints the picture is that there's a lot of fear that's pervasive in society. They're scared of speaking up. There is that kind of Romanian Ceausescu moment where the people fight back. Do you think that there is a energy of despair that's emerging, that people will eventually turn on Putin? What do you think they're thinking right now? It's hard to know. Um, you know, there's opinion polls, but uh, since Russia is currently in a significant moment of flux and people are really freaked out by the ratcheting up of repression, it's hard to know, uh, uh, you know, whether people uh, saying something positive now uh, about Putin may have said something negative about him a few months ago. Um, uh, but from what we can tell, it seems as though, you know, Putin with his complete control of uh, uh, Russian television stations and radio stations and so on, um, uh, has been able to sell his narrative of a war to his people relatively successfully. Um, I think it's important to remember we're not at war with Russian people, that uh, there are many brave Russian politicians and intellectuals and private citizens. Uh, people in every profession who have signed petitions against the war, who have protested against the war, many of whom are now in jail. Um, and, you know, I have deep admiration for every person who's who's making their voice heard in a situation where it really is uh, very courageous. Um, but I, unfortunately, I don't uh, see any indication uh, that, that at this moment, uh, uh, you know, discontent with Putin is is, is so strong uh, that it's going to be a mass uprising. What's perhaps more likely, if the sanctions really turn out to be effective uh, and, and they need to be strengthened for that to be the case, uh, is that there'll be discontent among the regime. Uh, you know, Putin's life hasn't changed. Um, he was locked up in the Kremlin a year ago and he's locked up in the Kremlin now. Uh, but the life of the oligarchs around him and the life of the wives and uh, children has changed a lot because they used to spend a lot of time with luxury willas uh, around uh, Western Europe and other parts of the world. Uh, and they're no longer able to do that. Um, and and that, I think, could be the beginning of a, of a chasm, of a schism uh, within the Russian regime. That's speculative. May they will not happen. But if there's some path towards Putin being deposed, I think it, 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 it would likely, as what political science teaches us, come through a split within the regime. You know, there, there's a flurry of books coming out right now uh, trying to explain from, you know, political pundits and political scientists trying to explain this bizarre moment, Russia and Ukraine aside. Um, and, and, and in your book, you, you, you talk of this diverse democ democracy experiment of sorts um, and that this project is relatively a new one. So in and amongst all the intellectuals or uh, political scientists trying to explain what is happening, in your, how would you articulate your thesis for our audience, especially related to your book and what we're experiencing at the moment? Yeah. So. Um... You know, what I've started to think about a lot in the last years, uh, especially with the rise of people like Donald Trump in the United States, the um, deep uh, racial tensions and racial reckoning we've had, is how do you actually 
build successful, diverse, I should say multi-ethnic, multi-religious democracies. And why does that seem to be so hard? Why do we seem to be struggling with that so much? Um, and uh, what I figured out is that we're really actually in the middle of a historically unique experiment. But there's been lots of diverse societies in the history of the world, but most of them were characterized by really very significant injustice. Um, the way they solved the problem of how to live together, by and large, is to give one group the right to rule over the others, um, which uh, can keep society stable for a really long while, but is obviously uh, not a solution that is just or that we would want to embrace. Um, and then there's some democracies that have been pretty stable, but by and large, they've been pretty pretty homogeneous. Um, uh, and there's lots of examples, of course, of, of societies falling apart along racial and religious lines. The worst examples of uh, war, of genocide, of, uh, you know, really uh, uh, toe-curling conflict, uh, often, not always, but often, uh, 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 fell along these, the lines of these kinds of conflicts. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves is, why is it so hard? And how can we nevertheless make the democracies today, or nearly all of which are very diverse, work? How do we keep them together and how do we allow them to thrive? So, so that's really the, the core question, the animating question of, this, of, of my new book, The Great Experiment. Yeah, and in doing so, uh, you know, um, I enjoyed the book immensely. I agree with a lot of the sentiment and the ideas in the book. I think the idea that I struggled with in your book the most is this idea that in part of making this diverse experiment successful, let's just paint a picture that systemic injustices are ironed out, that progress and prosperity is up and running. If we're making these systems more equitable, it means that part of that means, you know, a plethora of new voices all want a seat at the table. And that's what I feel like right now we're experiencing um, th these, you know, a myriad of new voices pushing back against type of homogeneity. Everyone is a majority. No one is a minority. Everyone has an opinion. Now, there might be other ideas why that's happening, especially, but I think there's an inherent danger within that because you say in, your, in the book yourself that the institutions of many diverse democracies are now struggling to make effective decisions. So I feel like there's a collateral trade-off, so to speak. So in, in making this successful, in grappling with the solution, it feels like the left is eating itself alive well, perhaps let's back up for a moment. So I think this is a really important question, but I want to put it in, in a little bit of a broader context of, of how we're doing the Great Experiment. So I've talked so far about some of the difficulties, right? I think we have a really deep instinct towards forming groups and then discriminating in favor of the members of the in-group and against anybody who's seen as an outsider. And you see that over and over in history, and you see it uh, in, in the lab as well. I think there's actually something about democracy that can make this harder. When you see the, the huge fears on the far right of the political spectrum about demographic change, uh, that has something to do with democracy. Because in a monarchy, I don't have to care if there's more people in your group than in mine, or if you have more children, or there's more immigrants who look like you rather than me. 
because uh, we don't have any power anyway. And as long as we trust the monarch, it's not going to change anything. In a democracy, you're always searching for majorities. And so the idea that, hey, suddenly somebody else is going to come in, they're going to be in the majority, and that's going to change everything, uh, is actually sometimes fueled by democratic mechanisms. So I really try to to, to explain the reasons for, for these dangers and for this difficulty in a really visceral way in this book. But ironically or paradoxically, I actually think that it's exactly the description of these difficulties which can make us more optimistic and which makes me more optimistic than the art political consensus we now have around this question. So when I look at the description of what our society looks like, when from the right I get a pessimism, that is basically saying, look, these people who are coming in, they're somehow inferior. You know, the real reason why our societies are so successful is that there's this majority group that has its virtues. And the people uh, who are changing the society, the minority groups, the immigrants, they're culturally inferior or perhaps they're even genetically inferior. And so that's why nothing can work. That's why they're not succeeding. That's why they're making this money and all of those kinds of claims, right? Now, most of my friends, most of my acquaintances, most of my colleagues would reject that analysis and they would write to reject uh, the idea that this is somehow the fault of immigrants or a fault of minority groups. But they often actually have a similar kind of pessimism because they say, look, it's because of our injustices, our discrimination, um, uh, because our, our society is so terrible that nobody can succeed here. But we have these huge wage gaps, but we have these huge wealth gaps, but, but everything is terrible and we're not going to do any better. Um, now, actually, I spend a lot of time looking at uh, empirical evidence on these questions. And I was surprised by, by how much reason for optimism they actually give us. So in Europe, for example, uh, you know, the first generation of immigrants is, is often from less affluent countries and they don't necessarily... Uh, learn the language of a new country is perfectly, but often don't. Um, they earn a lot less than the average of the population, which is unsurprising given that they didn't have the same educational opportunities. But the children are more likely to rise from the socioeconomic ranks than the children of similarly situated quote-unquote natives. And the grandchildren um, rise even more quickly. Um, we see the same thing in the United States. So the best study on this with a million data points, a huge, very careful study by economists and uh, Stanford and uh, Princeton and other places, um, shows that uh, immigrants to the United States today from El Salvador and Mexico and Vietnam and, and Kenya are uh, integrating as rapidly and making a, as, as, as much socioeconomic progress as Italian and Irish immigrants were 100 years ago. Now, that shows obviously that uh, people on the far right are wrong because it turns out these immigrants are not somehow inferior to Italian or Irish immigrants 100 years ago. But it also shows, despite the obvious existence of discrimination, the obvious existence of, of, of racism and injustice, um, which, which is real in our society and which we have to fight against, uh, that the pessimistic narrative on the left is also wrong. That it's also wrong to say that uh, you know, Italian and Irish immigrants could integrate because they were white, whereas uh, you know, today's immigrants don't have the same opportunity at all. Um, and, and so, you know, just, just, just to put your question, which is important in the context, um, I actually am, am pessimistic about the state of our political discourse. I'm pessimistic about what's going on in, in, in Washington, D.C., or for that matter, in Paris or Berlin. Uh, I'm pessimistic about uh, what I see as a kind of civil war the elites 
uh, cultures of war, the elites, it's increasingly dominating uh, Twitter and all of those kinds of things. Um, but the actual developments in, in, in the heart of society are reasonably good and they're much better than we might expect by looking at the long history of diverse societies going badly wrong. Yeah, and I think this kind of plays into the idea that maybe the intelligentsia or the intellectual elite are so levitating off the ground they don't have, you know, a clear eye of exactly how the people, quote-unquote, are feeling. The more power individuals get, and it feels like they are becoming more empowered, they have more of an equitable stake in society and they have an idea of how we should be governed, correct? So everyone is going to have a very different idea about how our future could look, especially considering all the threats that we're facing. Yeah, so, so, so again, it's unclear to me that that's actually the case. That's what it might look like on Twitter when I look at uh, society more broadly. It's not obvious to me. Um, I mean, here's a really interesting example. It's a little bit off the beaten track, right? Um, but uh, I'm going to ask a kind of quiz question to your, to, your, to your audience, which is, do you think that women are much more likely to favor abortion rights than men? Um, I think most people talk as though that was the case. Um, certainly in everyday political discourse, that's what it feels like. And it's obviously a more controversial question in the United States than in Europe and so on. Um, but it's not actually true. Um, and men and women have strikingly similar opinions uh, about this question. Uh, it's very divided in the United States, uh, but, but men and women are about as likely to be pro-life as each other and they're about as likely to be uh, pro-choice uh, as each other. Um, now, something similar is going on when you, when you, when you talk about questions um, touching more on, on, on race or on, on religion. Uh, that you often have a very divided uh, elite uh, that within the elite, uh, for reasons which mostly have to do with who gets platformed by predominantly white journalists, there is a seeming unity of opinion among uh, the most visible African-American writers and journalists, for example, um, and the same for Latinos and the same for Asian-Americans. Uh, but when you look at mass opinion, that's simply not the case. Um, so, you know, you can watch CNN all day long and you would assume, for example, that there's a, a huge supermajority of support for affirmative action uh, among uh, probably most Americans, but certainly among uh, non-white Americans and certainly among African-Americans. Um, but when you had uh, a referendum on affirmative action in California uh, in, in November 2020, when a huge majority of people voted for Joe Biden over Donald Trump in that state, you also had a very clear majority uh, in favor of uh, upholding a ban on affirmative action for state universities there, um, which was supported uh, by, by every demographic group. Um, so, so, so just, again, to point out that often, you know, yes, we, 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 we have a society that's less and less dominated by one group, and that does often make debates more freewheeling. Um, and that is obviously a very good thing. Um, but the ideas uh, that uh, are sort of culturally sensitive, the ideas where, uh, you know, people suddenly think, oh, can I tweet about that? Uh, uh, very rarely have uh, uh, majority support 
among the groups uh, whose interests they they supposedly uh, And I, I want to kind of move this discussion to to perhaps somewhere else, which is, you know, a lot of us are spinning on the idea that we are aware of the threats that we face. But I think a lot about the variables that we don't know. I think a lot about uh, the harms that are created that perhaps are quite invisible. One of those things perhaps that we can discuss is technology. And I think it's created an enormous upheaval in our society, to which extent um, it's probably more malicious than we know. Um, and in terms of the, tech, the the experiment that you talk about, talk about, I think it's bifurcated our system. Uh, it's almost cleaved us. So can you talk about democracy from that point of view? Yeah, I, I think that's right. Um, look, there are some changes... Uh, the technology is brought about, which is are structural and and lasting. Um, uh, you know, 30 years ago, there was a relatively small number of media gatekeepers who could actually determine the shape of the discourse uh, to a significant extent. And some of that was negative because it uh, bore the preferences and the prejudices of that relatively small group. And some of it was positive because things that were simply untrue or that were lies or that were uh, very openly hateful in certain kinds of ways wouldn't have uh, been given a platform. Um, uh, you know, the New York Times simply would not have chosen to print it as a column. Um, uh, today, uh, that kind of gatekeeping role is over. Um, uh, you know, it's striking that uh, many podcasts now have a lot more listeners than uh, CNN and MSNBC and Fox News put together. Uh, so, uh, you know, the, the costs of distribution are so low uh, that that this gatekeeping function no longer exists. Uh, so that's going to stay with us. Um, the question is, is that something negative or can it be something positive? Um, uh, I think we're hugely uh, exaggerating the costs of free, free change of ideas at the moment. I saw, for example... What do you mean by that? I'll give you an example. I saw uh, um, a study being prominently tweeted by the Stanford University Twitter accounts. It was by some Stanford scientists, but it's really also had the institutional backing of the university in, in the way that it was communicated. And they were saying the cost of free speech is, I forget the exact number, about 300,000 additional people dead in the pandemic in the United States. And uh, the, the idea was that uh, because free speech allowed uh, people to criticize the vaccines, um, uh, to spread conspiracy theories about them. I just to be very clear, obviously, think that vaccines are an amazing gift from science and, you know, got vaccinated the first day I was eligible for it. Um, uh, but the idea was that because criticism of these vaccines was, was allowed and many Americans did not get vaccinated, that some way of seeing who was exposed to what kind of information and then they then deduced how many Americans were harmed by free speech um, but, you know, the first thing you learn uh, when you do a little bit of statistics uh, and when you try to think about causation in social science is that some alternatives, but essentially you always think about it in a counterfactual manner, which is to say, you know, if you want to understand the cost of free speech, you have to think about what would a, situ a situation look like where you don't have free speech. And we have that situation. It's China. And it turns out that in China, up to 50% of elderly people are not vaccinated because though they don't, aren't exposed to much information criticizing the vaccines, 
They mistrust the government. They know that if there were legitimate critiques of the vaccines, they would not hear them. And so many of them chose not to get vaccinated. So I think this is a great example of where we're saying the cost of free speech is, is the tragic fact that many people did not choose to get vaccinated. But we're not thinking about what the society would actually look like if there weren't any free speech. And the answer is mistrust in science would be deeper, not, not, not less deep than it is now. I, I'd, I'd like to kind of challenge you on that and see what you think. I, I'm interested, you know, we've always had this traditional idea of, of free, we value free speech so much. But free speech coupled with this, you know, enormously disruptive technology is a vastly different proposition. You know, traditionally, we always thought, you know, in the, this diverse experiment that you talk about, democracy, the founding fathers of America predicated on this idea that, you know, we should be able to speak freely to each other, you know, build structures based on robust ideas or whatnot. But technology doesn't have, you know, a very kind of robust way of dealing with free speech because it it's just, it's such a cacophony of noise. I'm not sure we've we've lived through the first wave of it to really understand how to tweak it or how to or or, or how to uh, or how to make it better in that way. Well, I think there are questions about how to make it better, and that's to do with how we individually engage with social media, um, and it's particularly to do with how decision makers respond to social media. So one of the things that I find really striking and really damaging at the moment is that uh, uh, let me tell you about a simple contrast. Uh, you know, 30 years ago, newspapers got a lot of letters to the editor. And they read them, and sometimes they printed them. They had a kind of rubric for it. But every veteran journalist you speak to knows and knew that those letters to the editor were not an ad adequate reflection of public opinion. That, uh, you know, many people read an article and quietly agree or quietly disagree, not have a particularly strong opinion on it. But the person who's moved to write a letter to comment on the article is much more likely to have an extreme view on it. Either particularly like it or particularly hate it, because, you know, otherwise, why do they take the time to actually write about it? Um, and so uh, newsrooms weren't that influenced by the letters to be edited because they realized that they're actually not representative of the average readers. Um, somehow we haven't learned the same lesson about Twitter. You know, sometimes enough for free people on Twitter to uh, say that something is offensive, and the next day the New York Times will write an article saying so-and-so called out over this thing, when it's just free random people on Twitter saying that. You know, as a result now, um, the most extreme voices um, have this odd discursive hegemony where they're able to uh, present themselves as, uh, you know, representatives of millions and millions of people where they're able to, to have tremendous influence on politics. And, uh, you know, this is something that, that, that influence, influences political decisions at the very highest levels. Uh, I was talking yesterday to a seasoned, very uh, smart uh, uh, political strategist for the Democratic Party, asking him why the Biden White House has struggled to communicate well with the public and why Biden is relatively unpopular, which is of real concern to me, since I certainly don't want uh, Donald J. Trump to be the 47th as well as the 45th president of the United States. Um, and he was saying, I think a lot of the problem is that uh, uh, 
the chief of staff, uh, uh, spends a lot of his time on Twitter and that he really takes seriously uh, the prevailing opinion there, thinking that it stands for the democratic base when it actually stands for uh, a, a bunch of very online uh, uh, activists. Yeah. I'm not even talking about social media. Social media aside, I'm just talking about the cleavage that's going on through technology, for instance, you know, um, you know, bias that's created through artificial intelligence. We don't even know how deep that goes. Talking about the economic disruption through apps and technology, drivers that are put out via Uber, just one minor example. Yeah, um, look, some of this I worry about for the future, uh, but it's, it just hasn't happened yet, right? So absolutely, I also worry about the millions and millions of truck drivers in in, in, in the United States and in, in, in all major democracies that may be put out of work by uh, self-driving vehicles over the next decade. So it's going to be a big social transformation that'll be very hard to manage. It hasn't arrived yet. Um, right now, the problem we have is actually a labor shortage. Um, uh, which is bad for businesses, might be good for, for for workers because actually for the first time in years, we've had some upward movement in wages, now somewhat eaten away by inflation. It's a complicated picture. Um, but, but, but the long and short of it is, you know, we keep worrying that automation is going to put everybody out of a job. And right now, um, businesses are desperately looking for for humans to, to, to do jobs for them. Uh, so, so on that front, we're not quite there yet. Um, I would say something similar about um, the sort of potential of AI to discriminate, um, which which is real and which is a, a serious problem that we need to grapple with. Uh, but we also need to uh, uh, put it in perspective. Um, uh, I don't for a moment believe that the average algorithm today discriminates more deeply or more effectively than an old-fashioned bank clerk who had very limited information and old-fashioned human psychology um, and who, uh, in a society that also was a lot more racist than it is today, uh, I think would have been way more likely to say, well, hang on a second, how can I trust this uh, member of some ethnic minority group walking through the doors, um, even if actually all of the data shows that they would, uh, uh, you know, repay the loan very effectively. Uh, whereas if somebody walks in who actually perhaps has a deep history of being unreliable on the payment, but you know they fit the kind of cultural model of what an affluent person is, um, uh, they would have gotten the loan. So you know for sure algorithms discriminate in, in certain ways that we need to be aware of and fight against. But uh, I doubt, and I'm very skeptical, that we discriminate more than uh, you know the average bank clerk making a decision about a mortgage would have done in 1995. I think where I'm heading with all this, Yasha, is this idea of um, chaos and complexity. And I think this is one of the things that I think our society is fearful against. And the reason why I think, and you correct me if I'm wrong, um, autocracies and dictators are rising because they're selling their, you know, their narrative on the basis that I can simplify your life if you just follow me, if you just cling to the order. You know, Karen Steno, a behavioral economist, points out this really interesting fact. Anne Applebaum raises, raises the, same, uh, the same point in her book, but she says a third of the population in any country has a predisposition to authoritarianism. And part of the reason, she says, is because they can't tolerate complexity. So I guess, you know, technology one side, um, a lot of the threats that we're facing on the other side. What do you feel about this idea of complexity 
Well, well, Anne is a is a good friend of mine. We're teaching a course together at the moment on democracy, and 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 Karen is somebody I've had on my own podcast for Good Fight in the past, and who's, um, uh, you know, really a very thoughtful and insightful uh, uh, political scientist. So, so, uh, uh, you know, I, I would never disagree with either of them. Um, but uh, you know, I think part of you know, human complexity has been a feature of mass societies for a very long time. Um, and people are always struck by the ways in which the societies are getting faster, more complex, more confusing. Um, you know, there really isn't a decade in the last 500 years in which people weren't saying that. Now, I think there are some reasons to believe that we are going through particularly rapid change and that the system we're now in is even more complex than it was in the past. All of that is true. Um, but I don't think that that alone explains the sense of doom and the sense of pessimism people now have. Um, I think what we are failing to do is to offer a uh, convincing account of how the future might be better. When it comes to climate change, we're not saying it is possible to deal with climate change by putting real investments in and um, having some regulation um, and uh, transitioning to renewable energies. But you know what? 100 years from now, our economy will be much bigger. We'll still be able to fly to have a beach holiday. It'll just be a you know, plane that doesn't use fossil fuels. Uh, we'll be able to heat our apartments in the winter and to have air conditioning in the summer. We'll just have different sources of energy. Instead, the narrative is, you know, 10 years from now, the world uh, will burn and be over. And the only way to deal with this is to have shitty lives. Um, that's not a convincing vision that helps people come to terms with their fears emotionally, that helps people come to terms with their, their sense of impending chaos uh, uh, successfully. And the same is true for the topic of, of my book, for diverse societies. When on the one hand, you have people who are saying, all this diversity, all these people coming in, that's just going to lead to disaster because historically the strength of our societies has been the Morris and perhaps the ethnic composition of a majority group. And so we're doomed. Um, and you can hear that every day on television nowadays if you want to. Um, uh, you need somebody to uh, give you a counter proposition to say, no, uh, you know what? Actually, we're, we're able to deal with this. And most people who come into our societies are integrating very successfully. And you know what? They identify with our values. They want to integrate. They believe in democracy. They're often more optimistic about the future than members of a majority society. And so, yes, there's real problems and, and we need to confront them. But you know what? We can build a future society in which most of us, whether we belong to some majority or some minority group, actually would want to live. Instead, the narrative that I often hear from my friends is everything is absolutely terrible. We are the worst human beings in the history of the world and there's nothing to look forward to. Well, at that point, no wonder that it's the, the Donald Trumps and the Marine Le Pens who are winning the debate. Yeah, I think within that vacuum, though, Yasha, I tend to agree with your, your friends that it is a pretty uh, murky time. And as I said in, in, in my opening, like I, 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 I am quite an optimistic person, but it's hard to get past the way that we treat ourselves and also how we treat our planet. I mean, that's one kind of quagmire that I can't seem to, to rationalise Climate change is, is really interesting um, and it seems to be quite an existential crisis for us, uh, probably the biggest one, because in terms of a roadblock, I couldn't think of a bigger one. 
towards the end of the book, you talk about policy prescriptions enlarging the welfare state, or as you call, you know, universal solidarity, which kind of hints at the idea of UBI, shorthand for, for universal basic income. I think it's redeemable and it makes sense on giving economic growth and investing in your people. But what I can't get around the idea is that governments are going to have to spend an enormous amount on climate resiliency. And the thing that that I that I, I'm trying to reckon with is the idea that every government saw what happened in France and they're terrified about a yellow vest reaction. You know, raise the 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 you know the petrol prices, people will come out in the streets and they will burn your cars and burn shops. This is not even the beginning of of the reaction. So it's making the people happy, but it's also investing in countries where climate is going to wreak enormous havoc. Um, well, it depends on how we handle it politically. So I describe in the book that I went to Paris a few years ago and I saw this lovely protest by people who looked like I'd love to be their friends and were, you know, well-dressed and good-looking young students. Um, and uh, it was an environmentalist protest and the big banner they had was Alt à la croissance, stop economic growth. And then I was back in Paris six or seven months later and the yellow vests were in the middle of the street saying, you are trying, as you were saying, to uh, raise gas prices on us. Uh, and uh, we're really angry about that. We have less than a thousand euros net uh, after taxes on average uh, to to make a living a month. And if you know we're living in rural areas where we need our car to get this to the supermarket, and and we can't afford this. So I think this is a lesson that if uh, you know those of us, you live in Stockholm, I live in New York. I don't own a car. Um, perhaps you don't either. Um, you know, I'm happy to take public transport and a bicycle to places, but that's just not um, uh, uh, that's just not how most people uh, are living. Um, and and to assume that it is um, uh, will make it much harder to build the political majorities we need in order to deal with very deep challenges like climate change. Um, but there too, and I don't want to sound like a general service optimist. I mean, I became well known by warning about the danger that populism poses to democracies at a time when that was unfashionable. So for a long time, I was famous for being a pessimist, uh, called sometimes a Cassandra. Um, uh, but, but on a topic of climate change, uh, it is a huge challenge. If we get it wrong, it is going to be a, a big disaster. Uh, but there has been good news in the last years that we don't tend to talk about, like the fact that the price of renewable energies has actually fallen more precipitously than anybody predicted 10 years ago. Uh, and so in, in many, many contexts, renewable energies are now uh, competitive with fossil fuels, which means that the simple economic profit-seeking motive is increasingly going to be driving decarbonization of our economy. Um, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, saying that that would now be the case would have sounded utterly naive. But thanks to um, economic progress, thanks to scientific inventions, and thanks, of course, to government funding of a lot of this research, um, we're now at a stage where that's, where, where that's the case. So I think we can realistically offer people an account of climate change, which says we need to act, we need to act now. And that involves certain sacrifices, it involves some government expenditures, and it involves some regulations. But it does not involve a sacrifice to our fundamental standard of living. It does not mean that your kids are going to be poorer than you. It does not mean you can't go and enjoy a nice holiday on a beach. And And I think... If we want to win this political fight, it's really important to to embrace that vision. Yeah. 
I want to end this chat by posing maybe a contentious question related very much to this experiment you call a diverse democracy. You know, there's a growing sense in and amongst some circles, especially in uh, Silicon Valley and amongst the techno elites, that government um, in its current traditional form might not be the best fit uh, to attend to society's needs, whether it be a monarchy or democracy. Um, you know, humans have always used the very best decision-making tools they've had at their disposals, but perhaps it just doesn't cut it anymore. I'm thinking about a more self-determined future, less interference, reliance on a different set of tools. There are some thought leaders like um, Balanji Siravasanan and Naval Ravikant discuss the emergence of the network state, um, favouring things like DAOs and crypto governments. Balanji has even coined the term the end of 20th century diplomacy. So I'm wondering, like, what do, what do you think of those sentiments? Well, look, there's many ways in which we can incorporate technology into the government much more effectively. It's crazy that there's still many things, for example, for which you have to do paperwork for when you could very easily uh, do things online. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of ways in which governments have adapted in the past to new technologies and have to adapt today, will continue to adapt uh, to new technologies as well. Um, I do have two concerns about the way that many people in this space speak. Yeah. The first is just a fundamental misunderstanding of context. Um, you know, in a, a free market system, it is very good to have what Joseph Schumpeter called destruct, uh, um, creative destruction. Um, you know, if you have a thousand startups and 990 of them are a complete shit show. Um, and they waste a lot of money of investors and they, they don't really do any good for the world. But 10 of them turn into companies that are really effective, that give us services that we really value or that drive down the price of certain products or, 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 or sure. processes. That is a really good thing for society. It doesn't matter that 999 990 startups failed as long as 10 succeed in offering very significant value to society. So let's have a thousand experiments. Um, uh, having the capital to enable that is really good. Um, the same is not true in government, right? The best government we've ever had in the history of the world is still pretty flawed. The worst governments we've had have been a complete disaster. And this is not like a private company. You can't say, well, you know what? This startup doesn't convince me. I'll just stick with a traditional service. If we try to build a new government and it turns out to be deeply oppressive or it turns out to be utterly chaotic or it turns out to not be able to uh, sustain the most basic services that we need, um, there's going to be suffering on a mass scale. So I just think that there's a basic mismatch between the lessons which uh, Silicon Valley investors rightly have taken from their part of the world, which is move fast, break shit, and if something goes wrong, it doesn't really matter. Um, and the fundamental situation uh, faced by, by governments, which is failure is really costly because the people who are subject to your system don't have an alternative they can easily opt into. Are you basically saying that the techno elites are naive? On that particular point, I think there is a certain naivety um, in, uh, in assuming that governments can experiment in the same way in which private companies and particularly startups can. But the second point actually goes to that, which is that um, 
you know, uh, 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 we Silicon Valley people sometimes talk about government as though it was a Soviet planned economy. And there are elements in which our governments do work a little bit like Soviet planned economies and, and which I think they should liberalize. Um, but, but the point of government is actually to provide the framework for a lot of private initiative. The wonderful thing today is that you can have relatively stodgy governments, but you can also have the amazing inventiveness of Silicon Valley. And that's because they realize that they're not running the economy like a planned economy. They're not, there's a lot of areas of life in which the government is, only gives a basic framework. And so, um, uh, you know, in some ways, uh, the reality we have now is actually much more flexible and allowing for much more freedom uh, than some of those descriptions uh, allow. But let me uh, end this point by taking seriously one of the fears, uh, one of the descriptions of the current situation that, that has influenced my thinking, so in a slightly different way than the author intended. So Martin Guri's Revolt of the Public has been very influential in Silicon Valley circles. Um, and his argument is essentially that the sort of stodgy, hierarchical, central governments and hierarchies um, are not strong enough to withstand decentralized networks. Uh, and therefore, there's this continual series of revolts by the self-assembling publics um, uh, that are undermining these hierarchical powers. And that's why government feels so inept right now. That's why it looks like politics can't get a grip on the chaos that we have in our society. Um, I think there's, there's a lot of insight to be drawn from that. Um, there's a lot to, to what Martin is saying. But I worry that there's a distinction between democratic governments and autocratic governments. But democratic governments might find it particularly hard to keep order, to uh, defend uh, the elements of hierarchy that you have in political life, uh, to defend organization against the revolt of the public. But autocratic governments may find it much easier to do so. Because if you're willing to fire at a crowd that's protesting, or if you're willing to jail anybody who criticizes you on the internet, um, you, you might be able to keep control in a more fundamental way. And so I worry that in this way, um, uh, technological developments and the revolt of, of a public way in power actually uh, don't lead us towards some techno-utopian future. Uh, they make it more likely that we end up with very stodgy, very top-down, very extremely hierarchical autocracies. I agree with you. And I think that's what this experiment, as you coin it, is, is about, you know, toying with new fundamentals. Uh, some of these ideas will be incorporated, I think, as they already have and some won't. I just hope we have the filters to eliminate the ones that potentially, uh, you know, overthrow us or or cause havoc on us. But we are moving fast and breaking things, you're right, and we'll just have to see um, where that leads us in some ways. Well, let me just say one thing uh, to end, which responds to this point about techno-utopianism, but, but, but also to, to, to my core preoccupation of how to build successful uh, diverse democracies. And that's that, uh, you know, if you look at the country in the world today that you think is doing the best, whatever you might happen to think it is, some people that might be Sweden, others might be Singapore, whatever you think, um, you'll still be able to see lots of flaws in that country. There's still many injustices, many things that don't work all that great. Um, when you think of the countries, on the other hand, that are doing really poorly at the moment, when you think of, a, of the worst places in the world today, Afghanistan, where young girls can't go to school, North Korea, where people are subject to totalitarian rule, Ukraine, where 
people are dodging Russian bombs. Uh, life is really terrible. It's, it's, it's a, an unmitigated disaster. And so in politics, the worst that might happen often weighs more heavily in moral terms than, than the best we might be able to achieve. Um, and, and that is paradoxically where a little bit of my optimism about the current state of diverse democracies comes from. Uh, I think it's important to address the flaws of our countries. It's important to have the courage to fight against injustices. Um, but we should also recognize that compared to the vast majority of uh, societies in the history of the world that have tried to make that kind of diversity work, uh, countries like the United States or Germany or Sweden are, are pretty peaceful at the moment. They're actually able to sustain some real solidarity above the level of different ethnic and religious tribes. Um, they've become more, not less, just in the last decade. Um, uh, and all of this should actually give us the optimism that, that we can fight against ongoing injustice, we can build better societies um, uh, on the basis of, 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 of the things in our society that are working. It's important to recognize what's not working, what we have to fight against. It's also important to recognize what is working and what kind of society we would want to build, what kind of society we would actually want to live in. Yeah. And on that note, uh, Yasha Monk, thank you so much for being on the, uh, the 52 Insights podcast. Thank you so much, Ari. You've been listening to the 52 Insights podcast. I'm Ari Stein. Thanks to Portico Quartet for their track Endless and Joel Stein of Glass Maps for producing this podcast. Sign up to the 52 Insights newsletter and subscribe to my podcast channel to get notified of my latest interviews with extraordinary people.